Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Okay, like I said now, we're talking to my dad about some of his point of view. So first off, Dad, since you had to drop off the last podcast about spirit birth, was there anything that you wanted to add to our discussion on spirit birth? Yeah, I think what we need to acknowledge is that the argument that follows, for instance, from the observation that individuals will have eternal seed, that's interpreted to mean that they will have spiritual offspring the way that is is exactly analogous to the way that humans sire and have babies. If that's the argument, and it has to be because the argument, for instance, from the Sermon in the Grove, wherever was there a son without a father? And then they argue, well, the way we know it's done is that you can't be a father unless you have a son. Well, that I would take to be analytic in the Kantian sense, and that is, those are just the definitions of the word. But I think they mean it in a biological sense. They mean that for there to be a father, there has to be a son begotten in the way that we know as humans they're begotten through impregnating a female and having some kind of child delivery or spirit delivery, I guess, in this case. I don't believe that that's the intent of that scripture. I think that kind of a reading is anachronistic, meaning that it's reading back into that scripture views that we now hold without justification in the text for doing so. But that is the primary argument. It's a deductive argument. We call our Heavenly Father a Father. We use the Father in in a univocal sense as opposed to an equivocal sense, meaning that it has to be exactly the way that we do things, meaning that God impregnates his spiritual wife or wives, and they have spirit birth, where they give birth to spirits that were previous to that time, as I understand the way that this is set up. There was this intelligence. It enters into the spirit body the way analogous to a spirit enters into a human body. And a spirit is then born. A spirit is made up of spiritual matter, but it's a spirit body. I think that's explicating what the intention of that line of argument is. The problem is it's a non sequitur. It simply doesn't follow. What it means is the kind of relationship that we have with God is as a son would have with a father. It doesn't mean that necessarily there is some kind of a literal birth in the sense that heavenly mothers are giving birth to heavenly children. The same kind of observation would be made. DNC 132 speaks of those who are exalted through eternal marriage, says that they're exalted and that they will be gods and they're sons of gods and gods because they have eternal increase. What that means is that they will continue to progress forever. I believe in the context of DNC 132. But in that context, I think that what the argument is that's being made by those who want to say that there is a spirit birth is that this word used for gods is analogous to the way that God interacts with the Heavenly Mother. Whereas the Heavenly Mothers, because in DNC 132 it could be either. But it has to be Heavenly Mothers because in DNC 132 it's talking of all humans who can be exalted, and that includes both men and women. And if we're gods in that sense, then what we're talking about is some kind of uh, eternal marriage that then creates a union between a heavenly father and his heavenly wife or wives. 
and that as a result of that union, they become gods. But that really doesn't follow really either. That's a non sequitur. So what I want to say about spirit birth is that it is, and, I, and I've said this, it's logically contrary to what Joseph Smith did teach because he didn't talk about spirits being birthed. He talked about spirits being eternal. And, and there's no necessity. I mean, we could say that Joseph Smith was inconsistent in what he taught, that we can have a logical contradiction. But then I would have to ask what takes priority. Is it what Joseph Smith taught or what we think we deduce from what he taught that has priority? And obviously, it's what he expressly taught. I mean, how could one do interpretation otherwise? And so, in my view, the view of this kind of what John Stapley has called oviviparous birth, which is the kind of birth that mammals have, it's a very problematic notion theologically. It's not scriptural unless you want to take DNC 132 to be teaching it, but I think that's a very large stretch from what the text says. Okay, I mean, but would you at least be willing to admit that it's not so obvious that one couldn't read D&C 132 and come away with the beliefs that obviously many have? I mean, would you agree that it's ambiguous enough that it's it's not exactly clear, but like you have your interpretation and opinion, but others have theirs, and obviously Joseph Smith isn't here to explain it to us, and we haven't seemingly got a clear revelation on this since then, so it's somewhat open. Again, it depends on what you take as context for interpretation. Is it reasonable in isolation to see it that way in light of our own present beliefs? And my answer, when and our, I mean, you know, the church in general. I think that is, or, you know, it's something that could be read into DNC 132 and therefore basing it somewhat on scripture. In the wider context of Joseph Smith's belief, I don't believe that it is a reasonable interpretation. Certainly, it's an interpretation a person can have. Persons have had that interpretation. The question is, is it a reasonable interpretation? In the view and context of Joseph Smith's teachings, I don't believe that it is a reasonable interpretation. But if, if you want to read it in isolation, as most people do, given the anachronistic reading that we now give to Scripture, reading back into it, our own beliefs, then yes, that is something that a person could read into the Scripture. Okay, and then, again, this will come on the hills of that, what I recorded about Heavenly Mother and kind of a case for and against. So I guess I'm just asking you if you have anything to add about the arguments made for or against a belief in Heavenly Mother based on what I did in the recordings. Oh, let me respond a bit to those arguments. I just responded to one such argument. The other, you've already made observations about, and that is the second, third, and fourth-hand nature of most of the observations. I want to talk a little bit about the epistemology of religious beliefs. Because what I'm going to be talking about is, what is it reasonable to believe? And the reason that we listen to a prophet who receives revelation is that there is a divine disclosure and God knows a lot more about things than we do. So if God says something is the case, we believe that God is honest and tells us the truth, at least insofar as we're capable of receiving it. And given that God knows a heck of a lot more than we do about virtually everything, and given that he loves us, he's going to give us a disclosure that is either the best for us, and as far as he can go, given where we are, or is closer to the truth, in other words, than anything we can possibly reach, given our present position. Given that, it's reasonable to believe divine disclosures and revelation. Do I believe that they're still conditioned by the place, time, and language, and so forth, in which they're spoken? Obviously, but that's a part of what I say. They're the best that can be done. It's the best that God can disclose, and we have good reason to believe the best that can be disclosed. So the question then becomes, is it reasonable to believe that there is a mother in heaven absent 
a particular personal revelation to oneself that one has good reason and warrant to believe. There's nothing in Scripture that would support a belief in a mother in heaven that I'm aware of. In fact, I would argue that what we do have, for instance, in Jeremiah, and when we're talking about the god Asherah and, and the other female deities that were rampant in the ancient Near East, that they are invaded against, that this notion of a female deity is actually outright rejected. So I don't think that there's a good scriptural argument to be made for a mother in heaven. The question is, then, is there another good reason to believe? And the, the second good reason may be, as you've already argued, or, or at least suggested in the arguments that you've raised, there's a good deductive argument based upon what is, in fact, disclosed. But in reviewing those deductive arguments, I've already kind of set the groundwork for saying they're truly wanting from a logical standpoint. They just the arguments don't follow. And just by laying out the belief in cold, hard facts, it kind of is a self-refutation. That is, it's a reductio ad absurdum. It's a reducing to absurdity just by laying it out. Is the belief really that divine beings with resurrected bodies are giving birth to spirits through some type of literal spiritual pregnancy? I think most people would shy from going that far, and clearly there's not scriptural warrant for that belief. So, what kind of an argument can be made? The third kind of argument that can be made is, look, we have all of these statements closely following on what Joseph Smith said, so we have reason to believe, or the people during his time and shortly afterward deducing a mother in heaven from what he did teach. And I think it's, it's beyond argument that there were several individual saints who were at least suggesting the notion of a mother in heaven both before and after Joseph Smith's death. How much we can tie it to what he said, however, is the real question. I see nothing in the record that actually ties it to what Joseph Smith disclosed until we get 40, 50 years after Joseph's death when people then first began to tie it back because they needed desperately to tie it back to give it some credibility. Early on, it was never suggested that, that they got this from Joseph Smith, that this is what he taught them in private. And a 50-year gap would lead me to believe that those, these kind of statements just aren't reliable. On top of the fact that we have a fairly complete record of many, many of these private teachings that were written down. People, you know, talked about them at the time. And we have a very complete record because he hired scribes to write down virtually everything he said in public. So we have a very good record of his public teachings. So, for instance, if you look at E. Hatton Cook's The Words of Joseph Smith, we have a fairly complete record of what people were writing down, even when they're just sitting around talking with Joseph Smith. What he says is so significant, they go write it down. They don't want it to be lost. However, it's just possible, but this is an argument from no evidence. We don't have evidence to this effect, but because there were so many people teaching it, that has to be the case that there's something was going on here. That's the best argument, but it's, it's not a good argument, at least not a very persuasive one to me. Now, the question could be asked, well, what about Brigham Young, who clearly did teach this? And the answer is that he taught it in the context of a, of a belief system that we now reject. In the context of his Adam-God theory, where the mother in heaven is clearly Eve, Eliza R. Snow later saw the mother in heaven as Mother Eve as well. That doesn't mean that what she wrote in Oh My Father means, you know, it's talking about a mother in heaven. But I've also suggested that Eliza R. Snow's poem is open to different interpretations. And what she's arguing is that in, she just lost her parents and she's asking the question, in the heavens, are parents single? Are parents single? The answer is no. She, so you make the leap that, that she already knows about heavenly parents. 
And she's asking the question as a premise for a further deduction. And as I read it, there's a lot of anachronistic assumption going on in reading into her poem, A Clear Teaching of a Mother in Heaven. I don't think it's even there. Well, didn't she later herself mention that that's kind of what she's getting at there? Yeah, in the context of Mother Eve being the mother in heaven, that's correct. That's not a basis for our present belief. I know, I'm just saying I've never heard anyone else give that interpretation of her poem. I mean, I'm not admitting that I've researched that deeply, but is that something that you just have come up with or other people? Well, look at it, because her parents had recently died, and it would be very natural for her to be asking whether her mother and father are still together and what her relationship with her mother and father and the attorneys is going to be. And, and remember, poems are capable of multiple illusions. Why not? I'm just saying, then she herself explained it later, explaining what she meant by that. Are you saying that she changed, like she wrote it down, meaning one thing, and then later was like, oh, no, I totally meant what you guys thought I am meaning here. You would have to show me what she wrote that made it clear to you that she had that view back in 1844 when she wrote it. Well, I just mean, if she later even interpreted it that way, would that not be reliable to you if that's what she meant? She wasn't interpreting, oh, my father. What she was doing was commenting on Mother Eve and how she is uh, the Heavenly Mother. The Queen of Heaven, I think, is her term. And so she's not really given an, an exegesis of her poem, you know, when she gets to it and talks about that in the context of her beliefs. Yeah, we don't have to spend time on that. I just didn't know if, if that was like a standalone belief or like this is something scholars hold as a possibility or you just think that maybe that's a possibility yourself or what? Well, I've read it no less than four publications. That's a possibility of interpretation and maybe a good one in the context. So I don't think I'm alone in this. Okay, that's fine. Anyway, move on. That's a small thing. Anyway, so that's basically what I have to say. There are another couple of things I want to say about the belief in a mother in heaven. There are some very clearly bad reasons to believe in a mother in heaven that I actually believe are dominant in our culture. And the first is a really objectionable argument that there has to be a mother in heaven. Because a father in heaven is totally inadequate to understand women. This is just theological nonsense as far as I'm concerned. A male can't really understand a female. Now, as far as I'm capable of understanding my wife, I'm willing to grant that. <laughs> I've been married to my wife for 40 years, and I don't understand her. But I don't think life is about understanding, and I don't think relationships are about understanding, and I'm not God. But the fact is, she's often a mystery to me. It's one of the things I love most about her. I can't peg her. She's, she's constantly creative and surprising me. It's something I love about her. But I don't think that this argument, because God would be capable of what I would call essentially a mind meld, he would see, know, and experience everything from the very perspective of the woman having those feelings, having the experiences, and so forth. He's so much intimately aware of our own experience that saying he just doesn't understand. In fact, it's so objectionable because more than anything else, God understands more about us than we understand about ourselves. So to say that he's inadequate to understand women is just, I've never seen anybody even attempt to formulate a, a rational argument. It's more of an emotional appeal. You know, men don't understand women, so God is a man and he can't understand a woman. It's just, it's just the largest non sequitur ever. And it's a really bad, objectionable, theologically objectionable argument. But it's the argument I hear most often from women in particular. But the fact that it's a woman making it and that I'm a man shouldn't disqualify me from making observations about the argument. Now, I've never seen anything from a woman's point of view, but that doesn't mean the argument is good. I think most women or church members that are making that argument are coming at it within the view that of in more of the traditional understanding, at least currently, that 
we're going to grow up to become, you know, like we literally have heavenly parents and they had heavenly parents and they went through something like this. And so we need to learn from them, their experience. And women see that as like, well, this is my future and I need to relate to my future. And though I can love my father, just as I love both my father and my mother, I can relate to the experiences of my mother more because she's a woman. And so that they're coming from that worldview that, you know, that's what they're going to be. And if they can't understand what they're going to be, or we don't, you know, we just, I hear this in the stress that they may come under since we don't have a lot of revelation on this teaching that we have of a heavenly mother. They're saying, well, that leaves my understanding of how I'm going to, or, you know, what the whole point of my exaltation is, is kind of in the dark. A male can understand a heavenly father and their role as, you know, governing, being God and all that, because it's fairly explicit. But as a female, I have no clue because we have nothing there. But I think with your particular view of God, obviously that's not as valid. Well, it's not valid, and it wouldn't be valid with any view of God that is in any real sense omniscient or all-knowing, the way the Scriptures assert. But is it a good argument? In other words, is there an emotional need to the contrary? That is, as a woman, I really need a female deity, because otherwise there's a lot I don't know about exaltation, or there's a lot I can't relate to. Well, to reduce God to just the guy down the street but a long time ago is really to misunderstand totally what it is to be divine, in my view. And I think it's rather demeaning frankly. And, and Mormons have a real penchant and talent for demeaning God in a lot of ways, and trivializing the belief in deity, frankly. Having said that, there's a lot I don't understand about my own exaltation. There's a lot I can't relate to. I mean, it's really hard relating to a morally perfect being. It's really hard relating to a being that created the entire universe and holds it in order. I can't do those things. I have no clue what it means to do those things. I have no clue what it means to be totally omniscient. and so. It's not a good argument. The mere fact that I am incapable of fully grasping what exaltation means or what it means to be like God, I would think that it is rather straightforward that that just is the way the human condition is, and we ought to acknowledge it as a form of cognitive and intellectual humility rather than saying, well, it's a good argument for believing in a divine mother. And if it leaves somebody emotionally wanting, then so be it. There's a lot that leaves us emotionally wanting. It doesn't follow from the fact that I would like to understand what it's like to be fully God and that I can't. Therefore, there must be a God that is, is like me that I can fully understand and grasp in the heavens. It's really not a very good argument, in my view, at least from a logical point of view. Now, I'm not stupid enough to believe that beliefs are all accepted because they're totally logical. That's not why they're accepted. Most beliefs are, uh, you know, I'm, I'm rather Humean, that is, following the philosopher David Hume on this account. We have beliefs that then come up with reasons to justify them in a lot of instances. And a lot of women, and there may well be men like this too, seem to have this need for relating to a female deity. I don't think that's a good reason for belief. I would have a need for relating to a just God, but it's not a good argument for the existence of a just God. You know, I, I have an emotional need to believe in eternal life and the people go on after death. It's not a good reason for believing that we continue after death. These emotional kinds of arguments about my personal needs are not good reasons for positing the existence of a particular state of affairs or being. These are just not rationally viable arguments. As kind of a corrective and a cautionary tale is the veneration of Mary in the Catholic tradition. There's pretty strong evidence that the belief arose in part 
building on St. Ambrose's 4th century views that Mary is the mother of the church, and then in the 5th century developed into a full cult of veneration of Mary. A lot of the reasons for the same ones we're discussing, and the veneration of Mary didn't exist for numerous centuries in the Catholic Church, but became widely accepted. And I think every poll done shows that it's a very popular belief among women in the Catholic Church something that they can truly relate to. And if and, you know, if you've ever been to Italy or Mexico or places like that, finding shrines all over the place to, to Mother Mary is not unusual. I think that what surprises a lot of people, especially when they go to Italy and places like that, is the preeminence. And by that, I mean the, the greater importance than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Mary is given greater prominence in many settings in the Catholic Church than the divine beings who were revealed in the Bible. And there are strong reasons, emotionally and so forth, why the... Now, we do have the, the Theotokos and Christikos beliefs that emerged in the early church, and that is, you know, she, she bore a divine, sinless soul, and so she has, herself had to be impeccable or sinless and so forth. None of them are very good arguments. And in fact, I would, I would suggest that the whole veneration of Mary... Now, veneration, they use the word veneration to distinguish worship so the Catholics reserve worship for God, but they venerate Mary. But then they pray to Mary, and they ask Mary for favors, and they give offerings to Mary. There's nothing that they do with God that they don't do with Mary. And so I, this is a distinction without a difference in my view in, in Catholicism. But when I talk with women, especially feminists in the church, who have this strong belief in, in a mother in heaven because of their political leanings and because of the inherent unfairness that they suggest that it's unfair if there's not a mother in heaven, so she must exist. Well, that just doesn't follow it if it's unfair to exist. And it's not a good reason for belief. So, you know, I'm talking about an epistemology of belief, that is a theory of belief and reasons for believing in the absence of either scripture or express revelation to support the view. And we're looking for good arguments in this argument that, well, and this is another argument, the belief in a father in heaven is based upon a totally patriarchal prejudice. And women were not recognized or accepted in this patriarchal culture coming out of the ancient Middle East. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we don't find a mother in heaven. But I would think that's an argument against God's existence rather than for the existence of a mother in heaven. Because what they're saying is the reason we believe in God has to do with our culture. It's totally a cultural belief and it has nothing to do with revelation. Let me ask you this. So, and you don't have to go into like the technicalities. I want to keep this simple and just kind of the idea of it. But part of Terrell Givens is not argument per se, but just kind of, I guess he just brought it up to allude that it's not as foreign as one might think in the history of at least where biblical thought came from is that at one point they did, at least according to archaeological evidence, God was thought to have a wife. And, you know, if you think of a tribal community, I mean, that's a pretty normal thing for all of the communities where there could be God and he had a consort named Asherah, a wife, in early, you know, pre, pre-Hebraic, whatever you call, I forget what they're called, but, you know, his, his argument was just that, you know, and that was there and that was a common part of the belief, but obviously then a, a different view or belief system stamped that out, not that it was always held as, as monotheism was always the way, but that this previous view was actually more ancient and then during whatever the reign of whoever brought monotheism hardcore into ancient Israel, they stamped out, you know, all the other understanding of gods and all that. And so also lost in that was this 
this Asherah and stone instead of saying like, oh, well, it's just always been like that. And the Bible, the Bible says that, therefore, obviously that's the way it is. I mean, history is written by the victors. And so he's, his argument was like, well, you know, the victors were the monotheists. And so they revised all of the writings about Asherah to say that she's this evil other deity, just like Baal, which I mean, in your, again, in your third volume, you were saying that Baal is actually a representation for Jehovah or something like that. So is there any validity to the thought process? This is relating to what you're talking about in feminism, where saying, well, a patriarchal order is the reason that we believe in God the way that we do. And I, I'm saying there might be some truth to that, maybe not, not, not as far political as you're saying, but... It's an exact proof that that's a bad historical argument. All of the cultures that they talked about were patriarchal, and yet beliefs in female deities abounded. And so it's just false to argue that the reason that there's a father but not a mother or a female deity is because they were patriarchal societies. Patriarchal societies, even outside of the Canaanite and, and I mean, you have the Assyrian and, and Babylonian cultures, which all had, they had their female deities, and they were terribly patriarchal. So what it means is the people who make this argument that the reason there's not a female deity is because it was stamped out by patriarchal beliefs is just historically false. It's contrary to the evidence. It's not a good argument. Well, let's move on to the questions that I sent you. And some of what you already talked about might come up again, but I just wanted to go through it in this order because in my mind it made sense. So first off, you know, this could be a big discussion, so maybe just the basic points, but when I was talking to Jacob after you left last time, we were talking about the idea of what the church teaches now as compared to what it seems like Joseph Smith was teaching based on all the evidence that there is no spirit birth, and we may extend that too, that he didn't ever teach about Heavenly Mother, but currently the church that we and you personally belong to fairly adamantly, though maybe it's not based on something, they, the, the leaders and the manuals and the things that they're you know, there's a, an essay on Mother in Heaven that's been officially approved by a prophet that's supposed to be in touch with God. So how do you personally deal with the fact that you have what they would probably term heterodox beliefs and you don't necessarily associate with the current belief systems of the church that you belong to? Does that cause you problems? Do you... I do not have heterodox beliefs. I have totally orthodox beliefs. I just have my orthodoxy. Okay, exactly. So I'm just saying, you obviously have probably disagreements on fundamental doctrines than some of the church leaders. I'm just wondering how you deal with that in your own mind. Like, do you go to church and you're like, oh, the church has been led astray by the current leaders of the church. That's too bad. Or I mean, what do you say in your own head? Because I, I don't know how to deal with that personally. Let me be pellucidly clear. Remember when I was elucidating bases for belief, I also suggested that personal revelation would be a basis for belief. And I will not talk about my experiences in this regard. I am not heterodox in any sense, and I won't talk about what the disclosures have been because they will cease to be disclosed if I can't be trusted with them. And I don't want my beliefs to be associated in any way with these false beliefs that are promulgated for political reasons because that's idolatry, that have been promulgated because of false theological beliefs about the inadequacy of God. I don't want to be associated with those in any way. But more importantly, I can't talk about this other basis for belief. But I assure you, I'm not, I'm not unorthodox in any way. At least in this regard, I'm sure I'm unorthodox in other ways. So, I mean, you don't have to go into experiences, but are you saying that you would agree with the statements that 
let's say Elder Oaks has made, I'll cite someone specific that says, our theology begins and ends with heavenly parents. That's simply false. Okay, so you disagree with something that a leader would believe. That's why I'm, I'm just saying. Our theology begins and ends with the fact that we are eternal beings and create and of the same kind of being as God. I mean, obviously he's alluding to that, well, okay, we'll just take spirit birth. The, the church teaches that there was spirit birth. Let, let me ask, what does he mean when he, he talks about that? When you say there are heavenly parents, the next question I ask is, well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean parent in some equivocal or some univocal sense? Are they parents in the sense? Well, and that's why they clarify. Like if we look at the proclamation, they say, we are literal sons and daughters of our heavenly parents. If what they're saying is that there is some kind of oviviparous birth of spirits from a resurrected divine mother, then my view is that if that's such a central beginning point for our theology, how come none of our scriptures talk about it? Because Elder Oaks has also given many talks about the basis of our beliefs being scriptural and based upon what we find in scripture and revelation. I mean, obviously, many of the beliefs of the LDS Church are not found in scripture. Like what? Anything about temple worship, anything about... I would disagree that there's nothing about temple worship. It just takes eyes to see and ears to hear to see it. Well, I'm, I'm not trying to start an argument about whether you're that. I'm, I'm basically just asking how you deal with some cognitive dissonance, because obviously a lot of people in the church believe that God was literally once a man, and he wasn't God before that, and then he grew up and got exalted, and that he had a wife, and that somehow they had spirit children, and that we came from them. Like, that's not an abnormal thing to say, and you know that most people believe that. So I'm just saying, when you go to church and you and you hear these things being taught, and you know that most of the people are believing this, I'm just asking how you personally can deal with kind of what you might see as a disconnect from what you believe should be the correct teachings. I'm just asking that, and, and I'm asking for myself, I guess, just because I'm trying to find a way to understand, you know, so I'm like, well, Joseph Smith didn't teach about spirit birth. The current prophets seem to teach about a spirit birth, and if that's the case, have they gone astray somehow, or are they not actually getting revelation? Is the church not really being led by God, or is it just not that important <laughs> that, we, that we are misunderstanding? So, for example, it may well be the case that people have different beliefs than I do about a number of things, but it doesn't cause me cognitive dissonance, because A... They have a different point of view than me, and that's perfectly permissible, <laughs> okay? Or B, they don't know as much about it as I do, and if they studied the way that I do, they may or may not come to the same conclusion. But one can be just as intelligent, just as studious, or more so than I, very likely in most instances more so, and come to a different view. My view is certainly not, you know, I've never put forward my views as something that a person has to believe in order to be Mormon. And third, let me, another cautionary tale. I mean, we had a belief that was very destructive, I believe, that people of African descent should not be allowed to have the priesthood. We pretty well know the origins of that belief. It didn't originate with Joseph Smith. It originated with Brigham Young. And we know that it originated in part out of racist sentiments. And then I believe that what we see is kind of a culture where people don't dare demur or disagree with the prophet for fear or, or because he's a prophet or whatever reason, they assent to these kind of beliefs to maintain unity. I don't like starting arguments in Sunday school, and so I don't. I don't like having arguments over things that we disagree on because it's really the best that I would do is say, let me give you a number of things to read, and then I'll show you why I believe what I do, and then you show me why you believe what you do, and maybe we'll change each other's views in, in educating each other. But because of this cautionary tale, I mean, every question you're asking should be asked in light of that kind of a practice alone. 
There was a revelation in 1978 saying now's the time. What it doesn't say is, boy, you guys screwed up in the past. And the question is, should it be saying, we made a bad mistake, we apologize, brothers and sisters, for excluding them from the blessings that they're entitled to. I don't know that it does a lot of good to do apologies to people who no longer exist, but I feel bad about it. I feel bad about the people who were excluded. Now, I don't think belief in the mother in heaven has the same consequences per se, but I think that there are a lot of women who would feel shortchanged if we didn't have a belief in a mother in heaven. They'd feel disconnected from their belief system. They would feel like their beliefs are somehow not being validated and their divinity as a woman is not being validated. And for those people, I say, you've got your own experience to rely upon. I can talk about sound epistemological principles all day long till I'm blue in the face, but the fact is, you're going to believe what you choose to believe. And if those are the reasons that you believe, they're not reasons that I accept. I don't believe they're valid or persuasive reasons. Well, what's valid and persuasive is a personal kind of assessment. And what's valid and persuasive to me may not be to someone else and vice versa. The fact that people have differing beliefs that I do within my own church doesn't bother me. Now, if I had a prophet who came out and said, Adam is God, and he's the only God that we've ever had anything to do with, and I think I'm quoting Brigham Young here, that would give me hesitation. I readily reject that kind of a teaching. It's false. And that a prophet taught that, Brigham Young, gives me great pause for, and, and great cause for concern. I don't like the fact that he taught it. It's clearly wrong in my view. And I think I understand why he believed it. I think he misunderstood what Joseph Smith said in an 1842 sermon and misunderstood what was going on. But he was prophet at the time, and I believe he had his own revelations. Now, what does that mean? It means that we can be wrong about a good many things, and prophets are not infallible. And they're not merely not infallible. They may hold a lot of strange and wrong ideas, and undoubtedly we all do. And so I believe that there's a great deal of leeway. If the church came out and said, we've changed our minds, Jesus was not really the Son of God, I'd be out of here in a second. If the church came out and said, we've changed our minds, God is not really a personal being. He's not really a person who appears in bodily form and that that reveals something essential about the way he actually is. I'd say that's not consistent with what's been taught. If the church came out like the community of Christ did and said, you know, the Book of Mormon's not really, you know, believe what you want about it, I'd say, I'm sorry, you've strayed. You're in apostasy. And I believe the community of Christ in this regard is in apostasy, and in many regards. And so there are lines that I would draw, but a belief in a mother in heaven seems to me to be in a gray enough area that I'm not going to get my panties in a wad over it. But I mean, it seems to me some of the same criteria of what you just pointed out in that it strays from the core teachings of the prophet. If you're saying there's a mother in heaven and she's literally giving birth and you should pray to this mother in heaven, then I would have a problem. And in fact, I think that when they do pray to the mother in heaven, because, you know, the teachings of Jesus were very express, you pray to the Father in his name. And that's a repeated teaching and one that I take very seriously. Now, let me make an observation, and this may be strange to some who are listening to us. There was this strange anomaly I noticed that when I pray and when I listen, I listen directly to the Father. But when Joseph Smith was listening and he received revelation, he received it from the Son. He received it from Jesus. And I've just noticed this difference in the way in his style of revelation and in my style of revelation. Now, I'm not at liberty to disclose my revelations, but my style of revelation is that when I'm praying, 
God speaks back to me. I hold a dialogue. But it's the Father that I'm dialoguing with. And I just noticed this difference between me and Joseph, and I just wondered, why is that? And I don't have a good answer for that. But I know the voice. I know the silent voice speaking to me in my mind and the soothing love that I feel with it. And so it's something that means a great deal to me, but I don't reveal those discussions. I've written a few of them down just for my own sake. I don't intend to promulgate them. But maybe people who have this relationship with the Mother in Heaven, maybe they have some kind of an experience there that I don't understand. And as I say, I've had my own experiences. I will say this, putting the experience into words would be very difficult for me, in in addition to the fact that I just can't. Well, let's go through these other questions real quick and try to be just concise because I just want to kind of walk through how some people get to a mother in heaven and then kind of... And this first question I know is rather large, so in the most concise way you can, and maybe if you have to refer back to your third volume, fine. But when Joseph Smith in his King Follett discourse said, God is basically a man, an exalted man sitting in yonder heavens, what does it mean to be an exalted man in congruence with your view that God has always been God? It sounds like that something happened at some point to cause someone to be exalted. What do you make of that? You know that there's no first moment at which God was caused to be God or divine or exalted on my view. That the three divine persons in the Godhead, as the scriptures repeatedly affirm, have been God from all eternity to all eternity. In my view, there isn't a period at which God isn't God except for during the period that each of the divine persons may have become incarnated. And so from all eternity to all eternity, as the scriptures repeatedly affirm, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are eternal God. And that's because they indwell in each other in virtue of their free decision to love each other. So there is no time at which God first becomes God because there's no first. In every moment that it was possible to make that decision, to love each other with perfect love, they've done so. Okay. And in DNC 132, it seems to indicate that it is required to be in the new and everlasting covenant, which most people interpret as celestial marriage, to become exalted. And so that's why I asked about what it would mean for a man to be exalted or to be a god. And so this refers back to deification, at least for us. So if it's required for us to enter into this covenant, are you saying it is not actually required to be a god to enter into this everlasting and eternal covenant of marriage? Clearly, for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, it's not required. Jesus was fully divine before becoming mortal. It's very clear scripture. It's very clear doctrine of the church. And he hadn't taken on himself a body and become married. So we have clear counterexamples. I would say the Holy Ghost is clearly exalted, doesn't have a body, and isn't married. And so the notion that one must be married in this sense to be a member of the Godhead and to be fully exalted in, the, in, in the, this kind of a unity, it is clearly not necessary to be married. However, there's something very important. There's now a new dimension being added to the divine experience through what we experience on earth, and that is entering into a unity as a family and being exalted together as a family. There's now a new kind of love, familial love, that is being added to the type of divine love that is exalting. And so now, for a full exaltation, that's why, you know, one is in the celestial glory, even without being married. But, and the celestial glory is what defies the divine persons. To be exalted in the sense of being spoken of in C-132 is to be part of this divine family where we have accountability for everybody who's ever existed as practical matter to be joined with us. 
and to be one family. And this is a new dimension, I believe, that's being added to the divine experience, the same way that being human added something to Jesus's divine knowledge and experience as a divine being already fully divine. Okay. I just wanted you to clarify those. That's on in your view, and I think that's essential for people to understand, because I think most people come to him like, well, it says it's required to become a god that you have to enter into celestial marriage. Therefore, God would have had to, at some point, do that. But my next question is, you do believe that, as Joseph Smith stated, that God did have some kind of mortal experience on some kind of planet. And though I know it's obviously it's just speculation, but is it possible that at some point in his eternity that God the Father could have entered into a relationship with a woman that is similar to what we would call marriage? It's possible that he did. It's also possible that he didn't. It's possible that Jesus did, though I would suggest the evidence is, is strong that he didn't. So I'm just saying it's not logically impossible for God to have a wife for you. Clearly not. Though exactly what it would mean to be a wife to God, I'm not clear about. Let me clarify this as well. So this is back to kind of our spirit birth conversation. I think we sort of talked about this, but on your view, God is not our literal father. So you would disagree with the statement that we are the literal children of heavenly parents, or a heavenly father even. So what does it mean for God to be our father on your view? God is our father in, in a numerous senses, and probably can't really elucidate them all here, but at least in terms of the kind of relationship we have with God, he gave us life. He gave us this life and has sustained us in life for all eternity. And there's a sense of adoption. Now, Christ adopts us too. Remember, there's this sense in which Christ is also our Father. This is explicit in LDS thought, probably explicit in all Christian thought. So the notion of being a father is equivocal. And is there a sense in which we are literally given? Now, this is kind of a, going to point out another conundrum. We talk about there being eternal gender of spirits, and yet we talk about spirit birth. So is the notion that intelligences before spirit birth also have a gender? And what does gender mean in that context? Does it, gender in our own culture, talking about ourselves, is something that's very difficult to define. And it's getting more and more difficult. <laughs> is God cisgender, I suppose, is what we're saying? I don't know. In any event, with respect to being the literal offspring of God, we're literally begotten through God spiritually when his life enters into us anew. And that's what the scriptures are talking about. I don't believe anywhere in the biblical scriptures it's talking about God being our father in the sense that he gave birth to our spirits. And I don't believe that it's either in the Bible or in any of the scriptures that we have. You know, and I'm not aware of any revelation that would establish that. However, we now have these documents that are very near and dear to the present leaders of the church that speak in that way. And because they have made those kind of statements, I take them very seriously. I don't believe that they're scripture. I don't believe that that is necessarily doctrine. I know that President Oaks feels that it is, but I think that what it means is that this is a view that has great weight and authority behind it. That's what I'll say about it. Fair enough. So, I mean, you kind of alluded to this, so I, I guess my next question is, this is something I wanted to ask you on the last podcast too, so the question is, is gender eternal? And does that even make sense? And you kind of just alluded to that. But I was going to ask, on your view, is there any kind of evolution from intelligence to when we enter into this, at least pre-mortally, relationship with God? Or is there, you know, some moment when we become adopted and then 
is there a physical change at that point? And I would allude to kind of in, in the Doctrine and Covenants when Joseph Smith refers to an elementary state. And I think a lot of the people that say that we were not eternal spirits, they kind of refer to that. And they're like, oh, this elementary state is all that is eternal. But what does that elementary state mean? Is that different than the spiritual state? He's clearly not talking about an elementary state of spirits. He's talking about the elements being eternal. And he's, when he's talking about, he doesn't use the term elementary, he uses the term element. And element clearly means the matter of which things are made. And so he's saying that matter is eternal. It's just a really phenomenally bad argument to suggest that because he talked about eternal matter that there, is, there may be some kind of a spirit birth. It would be more in line with an eternal intelligence. Intelligences and eternal elements or matter are, you know, uncreated. Neither indeed can they be by God, according to Joseph Smith. So there's always an evolution where growth possible. There's also a complete damning of growth possible. So divine beings can continually progress, continually open to new vistas of experience and knowledge, experiential knowledge in particular, but not limited to that. And so the bottom line is that, yes, there's a, con a total continuing evolution of what it means to be fully divine. We're growing into new vistas, some of which would be very difficult for us to imagine, others of which may be on the horizon. And so, yeah, there's a continual growth. That's what we mean by eternal progression in part. And also, Joseph Smith had a view where he might have been over-literalizing and misunderstanding why there were two accounts of creation in Genesis. Most scholars would now believe that it was combining two separate strains of ancient Hebrew thought into kind of one Genesis. But he interpreted the two accounts to mean that, well, one creation was spiritual and the next was the physical creation. And so I, I wonder, is there any room to say that perhaps spirit birth in his mind could have been something like organizing some form of body spiritually, you know, your physical earth body, before you were born or anything like that? Yeah, that's the B.H. Roberts' interpretation of what Joseph Smith is saying, I think, is what you're talking about. What I think that Joseph Smith meant by this kind of spiritual creation was that God already has the plan of it and creates the plan for what's going to occur before he actually creates it. So he creates a plan and presents it to the spirits before the creation, and then they assist him to create what their mutual endeavor is going to be in the book of Abraham. So it's a very loving thing he does. He has this plan. He invites them to be part of it and allows them to participate in creating and setting it up. And then they then go participate in it. And I think that's what he meant by spiritual creation. I don't think he meant that there was, there's a spiritual matter and he created things with spiritual matter and then he created them with crass matter. All right. And then and relating to that of, the, of gender being eternal, I know this is part of a larger discussion I don't want to get into. It's just in relation to basically... If Joseph Smith believed that spirits or intelligences were the same thing and they existed basically, at least physically, in the same state from eternity, then is, does it even make sense to say that gender is eternal? Like, because gender, who knows? I mean, there's a lot of weird definitions, but like, gender, at least biologically, has a very specific meaning. And without a physical body, I'm not sure what aspect of someone would be male or female. So, have you ever thought about if that is the case? You mean if we looked under the dresses of spirit beings, would we find what gender is? Well, I, I don't know. I don't. I guess they wouldn't have. I would guess they wouldn't have genitals or something because there's no biological. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, so what do you what do you mean? Do they have genitalia? I think it's, I think that's what you mean. Well, is there is there a masculine and feminine force within 
are those different or is it so or do you see intelligence as basically neuter and then we happen to take on male or female here and then we just happen we just resurrect as male or female but before that maybe that's not so important my view is we don't have enough revelation to address the question we don't have enough definition to begin an intelligent discussion okay that's fine because that relates back to some arguments i've heard about why there needs to be kind of a heavenly mother just this this aspect of a divine manifestation of the feminine you mean like the yin and the yang well kind of it's like if feminine is like this eternal not a principle per se but an eternal energy that some parts of the universe have and then masculine is the other parts then like it would make sense that there's some sort of manifestation of ultimate realization of the feminine and that's where some people even outside of mormonism point to like there must be some sort of feminine aspect either to an ungendered god or to some ultimate power and i don't know like when when you think of female it's very different and like maybe it's just cuz i'm you know a, a heterosexual male but like i i find females divine in form and you know i i feel pleasant around them it's easy for me to imagine that you know like wow this this is truly there's something divine and really great here that if it's there's some sort of eternal aspect to it i I don't know what I'm trying to say, but you know, I, I, I can appreciate that. And that's when I, I can picture a, a godlike woman. Like, that's not such a far-fetched thing for me to imagine. I'm not saying it's based on anything, but it's just like, it seems kind of inherent in the way humans think. And maybe that's just because we are males and females. But. I think women become divine in the same way that males become divine. And that is they choose to love in the way that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost love one another. And that we've been invited into that relationship. And when we fully enter into that relationship, we're deified. And women participate in that equally and in the same way that men do. There's no distinction whatsoever between the way that men and women become fully divine. So you kind of answered this one here, but like, do you see the role of exalted women inherently being different from the role of exalted men? Because like a lot of Mormons would be like, you know, gendered roles are very specific and you know, the man is the patriarch and the ruler, whereas the the wife will take care of all the spirit children and, and birth them and be a motherly person to everyone. Like, do you see anything in that? Or like, what's your speculations on what, it, what it's like to be a heavenly mother? The question has no cognitive content for me, so I wouldn't be able to speculate. Do you mean that, you know, the man in heaven don't do dishes? Or? Well, I just mean like, does gender become moot? Even if you have a physical quality of a, a female, does is there no difference between what males and females do in the afterlife? Once you're exalted to God, it's, it's pretty much irrelevant what you were on this planet? Or is there some sort of relevancy to that? Yeah, we don't know enough to even have a discussion about that, in my view. All right. In your mind, although obviously it's probably not exactly possible for you to reimagine the universe this way, but... Can you attempt to empathize with perhaps a different alternate world where the belief system was that the ultimate figure that you're to aspire to be like was a female, which is something you can't wholly relate to, and I know you've sort of addressed this, but if God was a woman and only a woman and that was enforced, do you think you as a man would sort of feel left out and not able to fully see yourself becoming like this figure? I'm not sure I can answer that. What I will say, 
when I was in high school and the way all the girls got brand new facilities for gymnastics and all their sports, and we were playing in a 40-year-old dump where the toilets wouldn't even flush and they were a cesspool, I felt like the girls were being preferred and I didn't like it. <laughs> okay. I can understand that a woman would feel left out when they're not included in priesthood circles and councils because they have valuable input as well, equally or more valuable than whatever a man can add. And clearly they have leadership skills that are equally or, or equal or better to men. And they're as intelligent or more intelligent than men. And so if you ask me why is it that men have the priesthood and that God is a man as opposed to a woman, my response is very simple, and that is, there's no reason, it's just is the way that it is. There's no reason that a number of things are the way they are, it's just the way they are. And so, you know, can I imagine God being a woman? I can imagine it. Would it change how I feel? I, I don't know why it would, except, you know, given my present purview, I'd say everything that's been revealed and everything that has been taught would then be wrong. <laughs> but if I grew up in a world where there was a female deity and I'd never been taught otherwise, I just think I would not be taught otherwise. And would my experience be with a divine female if that were the case? And the answer is yes. Would I have a problem with that? And that's, I can't see why. So the bottom line for me, is it logically possible that God would be a woman rather than a man? And the answer is I can't think of any logical reason it couldn't be that way. It just happens not to be that way. And there's no reason for it other than the mere sheer fact of what is. And so that's, you know, that's the best I can do in terms of speculative flight that you've asked me to undertake. All right. And this is, again, a bigger discussion. But while we're on the subject of this, I just thought I'd throw this in here. So from your understanding, you seem to be well-versed in, you know, scriptures and what's taught doctrinally. Is there any reason that's actual doctrine and maybe not a cultural bias that women cannot hold the priesthood, or is it just your answer of that's just the way it is? Well, because of Revelation stating that the men hold the priesthood, and that, that there is an express statement of the patriarchal priesthood system in the Doctrine and Covenants and in Leviticus. So the answer is that we believe that because of Revelation and Scripture, which, as I've said, epistemologically are darn good reasons to believe things if you accept those things. And, and again, this is probably a situation. God may have a darn good reason for that. There are differences between men and women that are biologically based. I, I can tell you that in the traditions, the polls show and the activation shows, that in traditions where women are involved in the priesthood, that male participation plummets. And in those traditions, there, you know, membership plummets. <laughs> and I don't know why, other than those are the more liberal congregations, and they tend not to be as wedded to tradition and scripture and things like that to begin with. And maybe they place into question belief more often just because of their mindset. There may be other reasons other than just the fact that they have female clergy. And so I'm open to the possibility that God has a darn good reason for giving men the priesthood and not to women. I tend to believe that it's the way of keeping men involved, but that may not be true. It may well be that God just chose this way because of the nature of the cultures in which we exist. So I don't know the divine reasoning here. I can come up with a number of rationale that I think holds some water and that wouldn't be morally objectionable. 
On the other hand, it just may be that God decided that's the way it's going to be, and he didn't have, it's a grace. God didn't have an obligation to give priesthood to everybody, so he gave it to the Levites alone. And they were burdened with the burden of taking care of all of the sacrifices and keeping the temple. They really didn't have other jobs, and it was a real burden for them. And then he decided he would spread it around. (laughs) And so because the tribes of Israel were no longer the defining cultural mechanism for telling a person where they belonged, he, he broadened the term of the priesthood. There have been a number of arguments made about women holding priesthood in the New Testament and so forth. I think those arguments are weak and politically motivated. I don't see good arguments there. I see very good arguments for an all-male 12, for an all-male bishopric, and for all-male presbyters or elders. There may have been deaconesses, but I don't believe that those were priesthood offices in the way that they're addressed in the New Testament. So this is a very large discussion. and. No, that's fine. Yeah, I don't want to get into all that. I, I just basically my question is, is there something inherent about a female that would make it so she couldn't wield the priesthood, which we define as the power of God? And so I'm saying, is there a logical reason, meaning, is it possible that there could be a revelation that would say that women can hold the priesthood, or is there something inherent in women that says they could never hold the priesthood that's not in their nature or something like that, in your view? In my view, there's no logical barrier to women holding the priesthood. But God may have a darn good reason that he hasn't told us. And so what I suggest is that we wait for God to tell us what he would like to have done in that regard. I've already said that the view that men hold the priesthood and women don't is based upon Scripture and Revelation. Okay, so you're referring to what you said again in Leviticus and that it just happened to say worthy men in when Joseph Smith revealed it. Yeah, I mean, there there are revelations about the divine patriarchal order of the priesthood, several of them in the Doctrine and Covenants. And so this this is something that Joseph Smith actually did teach and practice, and he did not extend the priesthood to women. Now, there are a number of practices that we now limit to priesthood men that Joseph allowed women to participate in. Like healing blessings and such? Yeah, there's no reason why the faith of a woman to heal isn't just as efficacious as the faith of a man to heal. But you're saying she can't do it by the power of the or authority of Melchizedek priest or whatever? The epistle of James says to call the elders to do the anointing, and so I assume that it was intended for men to do the sealing of the anointing. However, there's no reason why a woman, in my view, can't participate in that circle or give a blessing of her own through her own faith. If a woman were to lay her hands on her own child or someone else, and give a blessing based upon her eternal faith in Christ, to me that would be just as efficacious and meaningful as a priesthood blessing. What does the priesthood add to that blessing that wouldn't exist with just faith? The answer is, I'm not sure there's anything at all. Having said that, I've seen priesthood blessings that were miraculous. Let's let's just leave it there. I believe that faith in Christ is an eternal and universally valid principle. It is always the truth that faith in Christ is a mighty power, and it is valid for every single human being, regardless of gender, and that it is through faith that people are healed. And I see no reason why women can't give blessings of faith. I don't think that anybody in the church would have a problem with a woman giving a blessing of faith. If they invoke the priesthood, there may be a problem. You know, the church has just recognized there are a number of things we've been doing that we've limited to man, like being witnesses in the temple or to ordinances, or or actually, you know, being involved in performing ordinances that doesn't need to be because it's not in Scripture or Revelation. 
And so we're going to let women who haven't been participating in these ordinances now participate. I would like to see, because I don't believe that baby blessings are actually scriptural or based upon revelation per se, I would like to see a mother be able to hold her baby and even give a blessing to a baby. Just because as I look at it, I'm asking myself, now maybe the brethren know a darn good reason that I don't know. I'm open to that possibility. But I think it would be wonderful. In fact, I was in a Spanish branch, and we had some new converts. This is my second mission. And we had some Spanish converts that had been, you know, members for about three weeks. And they were giving a blessing to a three-year-old little boy. And his mother came up and, and held him during the blessing. And it was necessary that it be that way. And they wanted the blessing for the child. But the fact that she was there and she was surrounded by all of the men was a very special experience for me. And to have her there added to it immeasurably in my experience. Nobody raised an objection. I, you know, nobody looked around and said, this is weird. We all understood. This is the way it has to be. It's of a necessity in this, at this particular point with these particular people. Nobody dressed anybody down for not understanding. <laughs> it was beautiful. And so it may well be that the church will open up to participation of females in what have been, you know, assumed to be priesthood ordinances. And so, you know, I can see further changes that will occur down the road. In fact, I expect there to be. And I expect that, that more and more women will be participating. And I expect women to continue to be alienated because they're not fully included. And I expect women to be alienated because the church doesn't expressly teach about a mother in heaven. And my response is, those are your issues to deal with. And, you know, you're entitled to your issues. Okay. So some of the justifications I am hearing you say for why a woman wouldn't be able to hold the priesthood, other than, I guess, there's a couple of scriptures in like Leviticus or maybe just n not mentioning women when it's revealed or it's calling it patriarchal, I guess you could say is fairly good. But some of the reasoning sounds a lot like the reasoning that was used to maintain the position that blacks could not hold the priesthood, meaning like, I don't know, there must be a good reason for it because we don't do it. And so I, there must be some reason why that continues. I assume that it must be because God doesn't want that to happen. So do you find any, any danger in that line of thinking? In regards to this? If there were no revelation of scriptural basis, yes. Okay, well, fair enough. I mean, you already kind of answered that. That may be why I object, by and large, to discussions about the mother in heaven, what she is, how she is, how she must be a mother, and so forth. The answer is, we don't know. Fair enough. Well, that's what I was going to ask. So, in, in summation, is there anything else you want to say on this subject before I have my discussion with Karina? I think it's imperative to get another point of view. I think Karina would be an excellent person to have this discussion with. She does have a different point of view. And I'm anxious to hear what it is and to hear what she has to say about it and to be educated and to learn from her. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.